Luke 17, if you have a Bible with you. In Luke 17, Jesus begins teaching his disciples once again. And any time Luke begins a section with something like this, uh, he said to his disciples, like he does here in chapter 17, verse 1, we can assume that Jesus is going to, to describe something about what it means to be his disciple, to be one of his followers. He said to his disciples, and then usually what follows from Luke's introduction of that is, or Jesus' words about discipleship, as we sometimes call it. Discipleship being that process of learning who he is and what he's about and learning to follow him in that. Well, Jesus is bursting, I think, bursting our ideas about discipleship in Luke 17. He's shaking them up. He's turning them inside out a bit. Because I bet most of us think discipleship is for the strong, at least I used to. Let me take you back to youth group days. I started to get serious about the Lord my senior year of high school. And so it was kind of an encouraging thing, maybe even a flattering thing, when the youth pastor came to me and another guy, and he said he wanted to disciple us, which meant extra meetings with the youth pastor. It meant you're doing above and beyond what every other youth group kid is doing. He gave me a discipleship journal taught me how to write in it, write your prayers out, write your feelings out, write your memory verse out, write your, um, your takeaways from your Bible study during the week. I went to college after that and began looking for someone older than me to, again, disciple me. I read a book or two while I was in college on the disciplines of the faith, things like prayer and Bible study and memorization course none of these things were wrong in fact they're all in many ways very very good what was wrong though is the way I thought about them the way I thought about my Christian growth the way I thought about myself how I felt about myself you see with every new discipline and every new disciple thing that I added, whether it was being discipled or a discipleship journal or a discipler's study Bible, I felt stronger. And I felt a little prouder, too. So I want to suggest this morning that Luke 17 has Jesus telling us that discipleship is not for the strong, it's for the lowly. There are four discipleship themes in the first half of Luke 17. I'll give them to you. I'll spoil the outline for your sermon notes right up front. Forgiveness, faith, obedience, and thankfulness. Four themes, you could say, of discipleship. We'll only do three of them today, and then we'll leave that fourth one for all of next week. But like I said, the topics themselves seem to give a hint of strength as we'll see as we go through this, but Jesus unpacks them in such a way that it tears the strength right out of them and shows us something of the needed weakness, the needed lowliness for his kind of discipleship. Let's read it. Luke 17, we'll read the first 10 verses. He said to his disciples, It's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. 
be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he's come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But he will not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you may eat and drink. He doesn't thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which you're commanded, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Let's back up and start with the first four verses, which give us the theme of forgiveness. Verses 1 through 4 are kind of a nugget, but there are two parts to it. The, the first half gives us what not to do. The second half gives us what to do. The what not to do is don't be a stumbling block. What to do is be quick and eager to forgive. Don't be a stumbling block to others, but instead forgive their stumbling blocks when they come. Well, we'll get to the forgiveness part in just a bit, but we need to see the way Jesus sets this up in the first two verses with this what not to do, with this stumbling block thing. What is a stumbling block? He says, it's inevitable they come. Woe to whom through whom they come. What's a stumbling block? Well, it's probably more serious than you think. It's a temptation to sin or a cause to to give someone to go astray. It's not about one ever, no one ever being offended. So if stumbling block, you, it comes to mind you, someone being mad at you because maybe it's an issue of things indifferent, we sometimes call them in the church. Things indifferent are things that good Christians disagree on. Whether Christians can have a glass of wine with, with a meal, whether, whether Christians can watch that movie or this movie. Christians will disagree on that stuff. So stumbling blocks here aren't about things indifferent. They're not about things that just perturb certain Christians, maybe older, more conservative Christians. It's not necessarily about even tempting someone to go do bad, like Proverbs warns about, you know, watch out for those who come and say, let us go and do evil. It's not really that kind of temptation we're seeing here as the stumbling block Jesus is referring to. And he's also not talking about single occurrences, I don't think. He's talking about something more ongoing. Notice verse 1, he says, those through whom they come, the people through whom they come, they repeatedly come, they often come. These are people who are stumbling block givers. And the examples of stumbling blocks would be serious things, false teaching, false gospel perhaps even kind of a, a legalism of extra rules. It's serious stuff, and proof of that is that those through whom the stumbling blocks come will have God's fiercest judgment. I think Jesus is talking about Pharisees here. I think the Pharisees are the perfect example of stumbling blocks 
No doubt Jesus has them in mind. Partly you can tell this because he's been bouncing between addressing the disciples and the Pharisees in the previous chapters. He, he begins one section by talking to the Pharisees, begins another section by talking to the disciples. And so no surprise that this would be a hint back at the Pharisees, even though he's talking about the disciples. Would you thumb over to Matthew 23 to see Jesus talking about the Pharisees and actually to the Pharisees there? Kind of an example of how he views their stumbling blocks. Here's kind of an account of their various stumbling blocks among the people of God. Matthew 23, listen to this, scathing, railing sort of list Jesus gives to the scribes and Pharisees. In verse 13, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites! Because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and get this, right next to it. For a pretense, you make long prayers. You eat up the widows, and then you go and make long prayers. Therefore, you'll receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one convert. And then he becomes one, and you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves, because you gave him the wrong gospel. Woe to you, blind guides. And stop there, but you see how, how... how mad Jesus is at the Pharisees and their stumbling blocks. So it's not surprising that Jesus talks about this horrible judgment back in Luke 17, verse 2. This horrible judgment reserved for these kind of stumbling blocks. He says, woe, woe to you. A prophetic exclamation to announce judgment, woe. And then notice Jesus doesn't say that their judgment would be as bad as having a heavy stone thrown around the neck and being thrown to the sea where they would drown. He says that would be better than the kind of judgment they're going to get in the end because they have harmed God's little ones. You see that phrase, the end of verse 2, little ones. doesn't mean children, at least not literal children. It's metaphorical children. God's disciples, Christ's disciples, his sheep are also his children. And he's been saying the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like children. Children represent what it means to come into the kingdom because they're needy. They're trusting. They're helpless. They're dependent on their parents. These little ones are also the outcasts that Jesus is bringing to himself. And the Pharisees don't like these outcasts. They don't think they should be in because the Pharisees are are certain that the kingdom is built upon people like them. Their rigor, their discipline, their faithfulness, their strength. They don't like these little ones. Jesus says, don't be a stumbling block like them. Guard yourself, he says. Verse 3, he says, be on guard. The stumbling blocks are inevitable, but be on guard that you don't follow one of these stumbling blocks, trip over one of these stumbling blocks, and be on guard that you don't become one of these stumbling blocks. I pray often that the Lord would take me out of this world 
before I would ever teach heresy or before I would ever be involved in a scandal, anything that would lead others away in a serious way. I I think we all should pray something like that from time to time. I think we all should have a realization and appreciation that a drowning at sea would be far better for me and far better for the church, far better for my family than for me to be the kind of stumbling block Jesus is talking about here. Don't you just hate the Pharisees? Aren't you just growing in your aggravation toward these men as we've worked our way through Luke? I mean, these are the guys who, when Jesus does a miracle, they start plotting about how they're going to kill him. These are the ones who see the miracles of God, the kingdom, right in their midst, and they, they hate it. Jesus said in John chapter 8 that they had the devil for their father. He said the darkest parts of hell were reserved for him. Don't you hate the Pharisees? Oh, Jesus is setting us up. Because right from there, he goes on to forgiveness. Just then, he goes on to forgiveness. So he, he taught the disciples something about stumbling blocks and how bad stumbling blocks are. And, and I think they would have made the connection to the Pharisees. They would have thought about how bad these stumbling blocks have been. If they've been following Jesus for any time at all, they would have heard him rail, go off on their hypocrisy and how how they hurt the people of God instead of help the people of God. How they're blind guides. Jesus is setting us up. It's just then that he tells the disciples to forgive. Forgive people like them. Forgive even stumbling blocks like theirs. It's one thing to forgive someone who is a constant annoyance to you. That's hard enough, right? To forgive someone who's a repetitious annoyance to you. Someone who's maybe even doesn't mean any harm, but they're just a natural born jerk. It's one thing to keep forgiving one who intentionally comes to do you harm, who tries to get you fired, who lies about you at work, who tries to get others against you. But it's quite another to forgive those whose mission seems to be your spiritual and eternal ruin. What's what's worse? A true stumbling block, which may cause us to go headlong into hell, or an annoyance. What's worse? A true stumbling block or someone who gossips against us over and over and over again. Well, I know in... In our best of thoughts, we know the stumbling block is the worst thing, right? We think that's pretty easy to forgive, and the hard thing to to forgive is the gossip, the harm that someone does to us, someone who's out to hurt us in in a just personal way, hurting our reputation perhaps. But we know deep down, don't we, that Jesus here is telling us it's much worse to be a stumbling block than to be an annoyance. It's much worse to be a stumbling block to souls than to hurt their reputation. And Jesus says, forgive. That's exactly when he brings up forgiveness. He says in verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. 
Notice how rebuking here is the right thing to do. It's the loving thing to do. It's in hope of their rescue. And it's in hope of your restoration. You need to go and rebuke. They need to repent. We need to keep forgiving. Look at verse 4. If they sin against you. See how personal that is there? You. Against you. And if they do it seven times in one day. If they repent and come to you seven times, you still forgive them. Of course, Jesus doesn't mean just seven times. So the eighth time they come and you go, "Ah, sorry, eight strikes and you're out with this game. No, seven's a number of completion. And it's very clear in Matthew's account of the same teaching on forgiveness. Listen to Matthew 18. There it's Peter coming to Jesus. And Peter says, Lord, how often do I have to forgive my brother? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I say to you, up to seven times. Not that, but up to 70 times seven, 400 And of course, Jesus doesn't mean in Matthew 18, 490 is the limit. So at 491, you can say, I'm sorry, you've used up all your forgiveness. His point is that there's no limit to our forgiveness. The command for ongoing forgiveness exposes my fake forgiveness. We have a few options. Option one would go like this. You never allow anyone to get in close enough to hurt you. So they never need, you never need to forgive them. They never need to come and ask for forgiveness. Maybe it's never acknowledging one to be hurt, ourselves to be hurt, because that'd be vulnerability. That would be giving them the upper hand. That's option one. Option two is responding to hurt with a measured kind of forgiveness that elevates me, in my mind anyway. Oh, we don't say it, but sometimes perhaps we feel deep down that forgiveness is us taking the higher moral ground. We say, even in our culture, if not in the church, I'll forgive you, I'll be the bigger person. Hmm. That's something like saying this. I haven't done anything wrong in this situation, so if I choose to forgive you, that makes me better than you. That makes you somewhat in debt to me. I'll have some IOUs in my pocket for later. I've forgiven you. I've absolved you like a king does his peasants who've harmed him, who've gone against him. But once I've forgiven you of this kind of thing, once or twice or three times maybe, then it's time for me to draw back. Then it's time for me to put up a shield. Then it's time for me to give a little evil back for your evil because we need to teach you a lesson. Option three is Jesus' approach. It's this, when you truly forgive someone even once, You are making them over you, in a sense. You are serving them. You are not becoming their master. You are giving control rather than controlling them. Never used forgiveness to control someone? It's not the kind of forgiveness Jesus is talking about here. Forgiving someone like he's talking about here means that when we forgive more and more and more and more, 
it shouldn't get harder and harder and harder and harder. Why is it that it gets harder and harder and harder and harder? Because it's not really forgiveness, is it? It's mostly forgiveness. It's acting like forgiveness, but it's putting a little bit in our back pocket for later. I may need to pull it out, and then I may need to show you the record of wrongs. It ought not to get harder and harder and harder. But only the lowly can forgive like this. Only a lowly person can forgive someone who's persistent in their opposition, in their harm. Only those who know how much they've been forgiven can forgive like this. Those who think that they're strong either respond to stumbling blocks or first grade jerks or gossips with judgment or manipulation or condescension or limited temporary occasional forgiveness. But those who are truly forgiven by Christ should be those who are effusive in their forgiveness, liberal with their forgiveness because they know Christ's forgiveness. In Luke 7, Jesus said about a prostitute, who was gushing in her praise to her Lord. Those who've been forgiven much, love much. Those who've been forgiven little, love little. Let's move on to the second theme we see. It's faith. Verses five and six. In verse five, the apostles say to the Lord, increase our faith. Isn't it interesting the disciples asked that the Lord would increase their faith right after he said, you have to forgive and you have to keep on forgiving. You have to forgive those who are stumbling blocks even. If they come to you seven times in a day asking for your forgiveness, you have to forgive. And immediately they say, uh, can you give us some more faith? And they're right that that's the root here. That's what's needed. Faith is what's needed to do what Jesus is commanding us. A lack of faith is the problem for why we don't do what he tells us to do. Sometimes God says to do things that don't feel right. Sometimes God tells us to do things that feel impossible. And that old hymn is so appropriate. We simply trust and obey. When it feels like it's impossible, when it feels like it's not right, when it feels like it would be inequitable, we simply trust and obey. Notice, too, how they express a willingly, uh, they so willingly express their lack of faith in this verse 5 here as they ask him for more faith. They, they ask because they know what's missing. Just tuck that away as a good principle that even though it seems hard to tell God your faults and your shortcomings and your doubts, do it. He already knows. He already knows your lack of faith. He already knows your doubt. He already knows your hardness of heart, whatever that sin is. So we need to confess those doubts and pray that he'd help us. But what about Jesus' response in verse 6? Verse 6 He basically says, faith which is as small as a grain of a mustard seed. The grain of a mustard seed is there in the literal translation, in the the Greek. It means smaller than the smallest seed. 
the thing inside the smallest seed, a mustard seed. Faith, which is that small, can uproot trees and throw them into the sea with a mere word. Now, a mulberry tree, as it says here, was famous in these days for its deep roots and its strengths. The rabbis used to guess, they didn't keep records of this stuff, so this is why this isn't true, but they used to guess that a mulberry tree planted would stay in that same spot for 600 years. It was famous for its strength and for its deep roots. And so it would have been enormous labor to dig one out and to move it, even with a number of men and the best of tools. And Jesus says that faith that's only as big as a grain of a mustard seed can do it. I've been troubled with this verse since I was a little kid. When I would hear this verse as a little kid, my mind would immediately wonder, if the disciples' faith was smaller than a grain of a mustard seed, how small is mine? And they're the disciples. They're seeing this stuff. Sometimes they stick their foot in their mouth. Sometimes they have little faith. But, but boy, th- their faith has to be better than mine. How small is mine? How small is yours? I mean, I, I don't see today any of us moving trees in our backyard just with our faith. I've yet to see a truck with the company name on the side of the door there that says Mustard Seed Faith Tree Removal Company. Because you could make a killing if you could just move trees with a word. And so how small is our faith if Jesus says their faith wasn't as big as a grain inside a mustard seed? Is ours a molecule? Is ours an atom? Is ours merely an electron? No, I think Jesus' point here is that the size doesn't matter. That's precisely his point. The size of the faith doesn't matter. Even the smallest faith is great when it's fixed on a great God. It's not the size of the faith, but it's the size of the God that we fix our faith upon. Your faith can't pick up a mulberry tree and throw it into the sea. God can. God can. One commentator in this passage suggested that faith is like a window through which we look. And so it doesn't matter if the window is six inches or it's six feet. You can still see God. Faith is the window through which we see him. And even when it's small, we can see him. And even when it's small, we can see that he does great things. Even when it's as small as as the grain of a mustard seed, we can see through that that he's a God who can uproot, who can throw into the sea, who can do what we can't, who can do the impossible. What seems utterly impossible to us is so easy with God. So Jesus' point is not that our faith can do great things, but that he can do great things. So notice Jesus is talking about faith. In the same way he talked about forgiveness, he's showing us that discipleship is for the lowly. Because we're tempted to feel strong when we forgive. We're tempted to feel like we have the upper hand when we forgive. Like we're the bigger person. But that's only fake forgiveness. Real forgiveness, complete forgiveness, ongoing forgiveness is... For the lowly, only the lowly would keep forgiving. 
we're tempted to think of great faith as something that's so strong. Great faith. I believe that I could just hurl that tree into the sea. That looks strong. That sounds strong. But Jesus is saying here, their faith is small. And the problem isn't even the size of their faith. The problem is that they have the wrong conception of faith. They think it needs to get bigger when really they need to look to a God who is bigger than any problem. The answer is not in faith. It's in the God behind faith. So we don't look at the window. We look through the window. The window isn't great. It's there for us to see him. D.A. Carson likes to say this, it's not the amount of faith that saves, nor the consistency of faith that saves, nor the fervency of faith that saves. It is the object of our faith that saves. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ upon the cross. Do you have that faith? Not a faith that can move mountains. Do you believe in a God who can move mountains? Do you believe in a God who can, can cleanse your soul? And he did it through Jesus upon the cross, his righteousness in your place, his death there for you. Do you have that faith? Christian, maybe forgiveness, especially repetitive forgiveness, seems impossible to you. Maybe it seems like a a mulberry tree. It's impossible to uproot. Maybe you think forgiving that person is utterly impossible. It's like telling a tree to get out of here and it obeys you. Well, in faith, look to the one who can do the impossible. He did the impossible if you're a Christian. He saved you. He forgave you. Justice and mercy came together that we might be reconciled in God through Christ. Don't even focus on the faith that you need to forgive someone. Instead, you look to the one who is so frequently, so consistently, so repeatedly, and will forever forgive you. You keep looking there until you see God's power that can uproot the mulberry of unforgiveness in your heart. Well, there's a third discipleship theme, and that's obedience. Obedience. If by his grace you're enabled to forgive those who are ornery, sinful, even stumbling blocks, you're forgiven. You're enabled to forgive so radically and frequently and deeply like Jesus is talking about here. Surely, you'd have some high commendation from God, right? Well, that's what Jesus talks about next. He gives us a parable in verse 7. He says, Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he's come in from the field, Come and sit down and eat. You're tired. You're worn out. You've put in your time. Now it's time to relax. No. No, there's more work to be done. The servant has to get dinner ready. It'd be like this in our day. Imagine the waitress comes over and takes your order and gets your food, brings it to you, and then sits down and eats it. She eats your food. 
Well, she'd be fired, right? I mean, maybe she does that once if she's got a, you know, a very lenient boss, but the second time she's done. Well, what Jesus is describing here in the parable, believe it or not, is actually way more unthinkable, way more shocking than our contemporary version of the waitress who sits down to eat your meal that she's serving you. But the point of the parable is not that God is a thankless taskmaster who says, you're not done, you're not done, you're not done, and keeps whipping his servants on and on and on. No, his point is that we should think differently about service and reward than we probably do. Obedience and, and payoff. Look at verse 10. So you too, when you do all the things which you're commanded, you say... We're unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. In other words, we're not to serve him with strings attached. We don't have a quid pro quo relationship with him. Give and take. I do some. You pay me back. We don't serve him for a while and then wait for the blessing or wait for the ease, wait for the break. Remember the stuff that's hard he's already talked about in this chapter? rebuking a brother is hard to do. But when you've done it, you've only done what he's asked you to do. You've only done what you're supposed to do. You haven't done anything that amazing. You haven't done anything that remarkable. Forgiving a consistently hurtful brother who comes again and again to ask for your forgiveness for the same sin, that's hard. But it's only what he asked of us. He's the master, we're the servants. At our very best, with our fullest commitment. And even if there was perfect obedience, which there never is, but even if there were perfect obedience, it's only what he asked of us. So do you see the same theme once again? There's a temptation to feel strong about our obedience, about our service. Lord, I rebuked him and that's hard. You know I'm not good at that. Pat, Pat, Lord, I, I know that forgiveness is hard for me, but I forgave him, and I forgave him multiple times. And I know you gave me the strength to do it, but thank you, and, and I, I feel good. I feel proud of myself. I, I'm the bigger man. Well, Jesus will have none of that, because discipleship is for the lowly. Disciples are those who know that when they've done everything that they should have done, they are at best unprofitable servants. You know, all their good just profits them. Well, what? Nothing. It doesn't earn us anything with God. That's the point. It's only by his grace that we're accepted. In fact, it's only by his grace that we serve him. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that isn't a gift? What do you have that you could say, This is because I did it. This is because of my resume. This is because of my commitment. This is because of my hard work. Where did that hard work come from? Where did that ability come from? Where did those smarts come from? Where did those blessings in past time come from that brought you to this point to, to have favor with this guy and get that job or to... Or, or to go to that school. If you received it, where is boasting? If it's a gift from him, then how can you brag? How can you feel confident in self? 
He doesn't need our good works. He's not impressed by our good works. J.C. Ryle said the true Christian will never trust his own goodness. That's the question here is whether we trust our own goodness, whether we think that our goodness, our commitment, our hard work, doing everything that he asked of us, whether it gets us somewhere, whether he now owes us, whether now he has to repay us. No. To come to Christ is to renounce not just your sin. To come to Christ is to renounce your own righteousness. It's to renounce your own righteousness and to receive his righteousness, to trust the debt paid and the righteousness given, the righteousness of another. Listen to how this is put in the old hymn, Rock of Ages, Augustus Toplady. The second and third verse, I believe, go like this. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands, Could my zeal no respite know? Could my zeal just keep going and going and going, never quit? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save in thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, for clothes. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And get this, though. When it's all said and done, and when those who have believed in Christ and followed him are brought to his glorious presence in heaven, He'll serve us. He'll eat with us. Remember the parable? Servants don't sit down with masters. Waitresses don't sit down with the customers. You keep serving. Yeah, but there's more to the story. In heaven, there'll be a banquet spread before us, and he won't say, why don't you get up and get it? Bring it to me. No, our work will be done because of his work. And in heaven, we will eat with him. He will do what no earthly master would ever do, at least in first century times. He will eat with us, his servants. Because we're not just his servants, we're his children. There's adoption. We're joint heirs with Christ. We eat like one who's been brought into the family, like a son who's been born there all along. He'll do what no one else would ever do. He has done what no one else would ever have done. So it's only by his grace. It's always for his glory. So in light of his grace, keep believing. Keep looking at him that your faith may increase. Not that the focus is on faith, but that the focus is on God who does the impossible Focus on him. That is faith. Look to him. That is faith. And grow in that faith then. As you do, forgive others. Forgive because you've been forgiven. Forgive recklessly. Forgive 
in ways that just don't seem right to the human economy of our souls and the ethic around us in this world. Forgive. In light of his grace, then obey. No, this parable here doesn't tell us not to obey. It tells us to obey, but not to obey in a way that puts God in in the position of now paying us, now having to give to us. He gives not based on what we do, but only according to his grace, and we receive that in faith. In light of the grace that we have through faith, what do we want to do? We want to serve him. We want to be busy. We want to be servants who do the next thing, who are faithful and diligent and not slow, not slothful. And then we come to the fourth one, which we'll see next week. The fourth discipleship theme is thankfulness. And it's the story of ten lepers cleansed. We'll look at it next week. It's a story that shows that true thankfulness starts with knowing our desperation, feeling our desperation, crying out to him, and with healing glorifying him, praising him, coming back and thanking him, thanking him like a desperate formal, former leper who's been cleansed. I encourage you to read the story of the ten lepers over lunch today. You'll see how it relates to what we've been talking about this morning, and then it'll hopefully whet your appetite for our time in God's word next week, Lord willing.